Margie, I'm really looking forward to our discussion today with Scott McCandless, where we're going to talk about carbon tax, the impact it has on trade, and really some of the design and parameters like setting prices, quantity of emissions. He's really going to dive into some of those issues. And as we both know, this is a touchy topic because you have strong feelings on either side of the fence. That's right, Julie. Many of the world leaders have really laid out the moonshot. And now the challenge is, how do we get there? I'm looking forward to hear what Scott has to share with us. So let's talk tax. You're listening to Tap Into Tax, PwC's podcast series covering current regulatory, legislative, and technology hot topics through the lens of our technical leaders, as well as process and technology subject matter specialists. This podcast features discussions with some of our leading minds around tax, trade, and domestic policy. Stay tuned to our regular updates and subscribe to our series to get notified as new episodes are published. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Tap Into Tax. This is Julie Allen. I'm a tax partner specializing in mergers and acquisitions. And joining me today is my co-host, Margie Dendershaw. Margie is a tax partner focusing on helping clients achieve more efficient tax reporting and strategy operation. On today's episode of Tap Into Tax, I'm excited to welcome Scott McCandless. Scott is a principal in PwC's tax policy practice, and he has extensive experience with renewable energy tax issues, including publications. Scott advises clients on a day-to-day basis on issues including international trade and environmental tax policy. So, Scott, thank you for joining us today. Julie, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and look forward to the conversation. So, Scott, recently both the EU and the U.S. have released proposals to impose border adjustments on certain imports from heavy carbon emitters. And while these proposals have yet to become law and will surely face heavy criticism, it's still worth exploring the basis for these new climate-focused tax initiatives. So, Scott, what is the main issue that a carbon tax is trying to solve? And how did these taxes fit into the broader discussion around climate change? Sure, Julie, it's a great question. And I almost feel as though before we get to chapter one of the story, it almost merits a prologue. First and foremost, why are we a firm made up of consultants and trusted advisors with deep technical specializations in mostly tax talking about an issue like this? Well, that's because the legislative and regulatory landscape has shifted so much that this has become a very significant issue for business. And that's exactly what we want to try to do today. Talk about the ramifications for business rather than really have a debate about climate policy, which we'll leave to others. That's not our specialization. Our specialization is the way in which businesses will have to react to some of the new and changing realities. And there are a variety of legislative and regulatory proposals out there. I think that goes to exactly your question, the problem that they're trying to solve. So. What both the European Union, the United States, as well as some other jurisdictions have tried to do is figure out a way to use policy to change the incentives around energy production and the way in which carbon is emitted into the environment. The theory is that it hasn't really had much of an economic cost in the past, and perhaps the introduction of economic costs might deter some of the activity that leads to putting carbon into the atmosphere and into the environment. So far, not all jurisdictions have come up with mechanisms to impose this, let alone even figuring out how to price carbon. So that's one of the many hurdles they have to come up with. But there are a variety of ways that they might look at this. One of the new tax that they are taking is this international trade angle 
where they might impose some kind of cost on imports that come into a country where those imports might contain a heavy content of carbon, either in their manufacturer or in the product itself or in the end use of that product. So there are a variety of ways to think of it. That's the newest and most current conversation about the way in which the governments might try to address this. This also has a little bit to do with carbon leakage, the idea that if the jurisdiction imposes some kind of cost on carbon within its own borders, perhaps that might be an incentive to move your operations to other jurisdictions that lack that mechanism. So that's one thing that they have to address and trying to balance the needs of encouraging domestic investment and manufacturing against these environmental concerns is one of the key balancing acts that regulators will have to engage in. But either way, there is growing interest around the world. And I think that's a great tee up for our conversation today in terms of the legislative and regulatory landscape. So, Scott, I keep hearing the term carbon border adjustment. So just to level set us all, can you briefly explain how a carbon border adjustment would work? Sure. So in general, a carbon tax sets the price of a unit of carbon or CO2 and allows the quantity of CO2 emissions to fluctuate instead of the price. The advantage of this is that a clear fixed price signal can be created, thereby adding certainty to investment decisions. So far, that's been one of the biggest issues here, that issue of certainty versus uncertainty. Now, the disadvantage, of course, even as you get a little bit of added benefit in terms of certainty, is that total emissions are not capped. Therefore, there's uncertainty on the environmental side more so than on the business side. So they've come up with this idea of maybe having a polluter fee. Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, has actually proposed this in recent legislative concepts. And he has said this will be, quote, based on the domestic environmental cost incurred and initially cover both carbon intensive products and products exposed to trade competition. And he actually specifies some of the carbon heavy industries that might be affected. He goes on to say that the list of goods covered by the tariff could expand as the United States improves its process for determining carbon intensity from different types of goods. This is specifically referring to the polluter fee. I just wanted that to be very clear. That's not necessarily the carbon tax. That is the polluter fee that would be potentially border adjusted. And it takes a similar approach to what the European Union is doing. The European Union has a program that would potentially levy a cost on the importation of certain specified goods into the EU. And that seems to be the current direction for policy. So, Scott, you have laid out some of the certainty with respect to investment decisions and then also some of the environmental uncertainty that we're dealing with. In addition to that, what are some of the design issues associated with the carbon tax? Like, for example, where to charge the tax, certain offset? Sure. No, it's a great question. And this gets complex really quickly, as you can see. A carbon tax is really designed to try to equalize the price of carbon between domestic products and imports to try to ensure that the climate objectives are not undermined by production relocation. That's what I was talking about earlier with regard to the potential for leakage. And it also aims to encourage industry and international partners to take steps all in the same direction. So if they're pulling the oars in different direction, then the overall environmental boat doesn't necessarily move correctly. So trying to align these policies is part of the challenge as well. So the the real difference here, the carbon tax versus general tax concept here, that's creating a bit of a headache as they conceptualize this, is that the former, the carbon tax idea is based on bad rather than good incentivization, right? So you're trying to disincentivize something by imposing a cost that might change directional behavior, as opposed to trying to create an incentive for, say, research activity where you're trying to reward something that you want to see more of. So it has the potential for distortionary effects that are typically associated with other taxes. So the carbon tax is trying to reduce the marginal benefit that a firm receives from polluting 
so the firms can choose to emit a more optimal amount of carbon based on the governmental target that they're trying to set for the way in which they want their environment to be managed. So Norway actually has provided a bit of an example here, so we can take it from the theoretical to a little bit of the hard and fast example. They tried to implement carbon taxes, actually starting back in the early 1990s, but the Norwegian carbon tax had some problems. It levied uh, against all fuels with the same charge, even though they might've had different carbon content, and some firms were excluded from the tax, which created a bit of disparity within the economy as well. And carbon taxes differed across various Scandinavian jurisdictions. So the impact in one jurisdiction was different from another. That too led to some unintentional distortions in the way investment would flow. So this patchwork approach can lead to differing schemes. And sometimes that's good because one size doesn't necessarily always fit all. But at the same time, they have to take into account the overall environmental goal that they're trying to achieve, particularly when they're operating under things such as a more universal accord, such as the Paris Climate Accords, and how to all join together to achieve a similar goal. So there's a pretty big challenge there in terms of individualization and customization based on jurisdictional needs versus trying to get for a global answer. And Scott, as you mentioned, there's a lot of different approaches to this issue and some of it's carrot, some of it's stick. Everyone's trying to factor in the administrability of any of these approaches. So to help us understand two of the larger approaches, can you help us understand what's the difference between a carbon tax and an emissions trading system? Sure. It's a great question. And there is a lot of uh, confusion here. So with taxes, government sets the price of carbon and then the market sets the quantity of emissions. While with trading, on the other hand, the government sets the quantity of emissions and it's the market that sets the price. So the two approaches are designed to reach a similar ultimate conclusion, but they have very different pathways for getting there. So it's a question of who sets the carbon price, whether it's the government or the market and who sets the quantity of emissions, whether it's the government, the market. Taxes are sometimes considered a more attractive pathway because they can avoid a bit more price volatility that you might see when the market is setting the price. And you see that in some of the trading schemes. It's also a little bit more administrable. It's a little simpler when you're using a tax because of the collection mechanisms and the authorities that are already in place. So there's already some of that machinery ready to move under the tax regime more so than under the trading scheme. And tax also has the benefit of raising revenue for governments, which is not a small consideration. We'll get to this in a moment when we talk a little bit more specifically about some legislative outlook. But that revenue portion of this is not to be underestimated. Of course, all governments around the world are looking for other ways to get revenue. And this is one that potentially could raise some significant revenue depending on how it is structured. So that is not to be overlooked. But the carbon trading scheme, to get back to that for a moment, also has some potential advantages. Most importantly, it can sometimes be easier to get international agreement on a globally linked trading scheme than it is on a tax regime. And that political agreement is a very difficult one to achieve. So the fact that the trading scheme has that advantage, that makes some countries look to that when they're doing their negotiations. Some degree of carbon price flexibility within a trading scheme can also be desired because of the uncertainty. Conditions can change and the ability of allowing the markets to react more nimbly to that then can either legislators or regulators is somewhat attractive under a trading scheme. So there are merits to both. But that EU cap and trade emissions trading scheme or ETS, that's been in place for many years within the European Union. So that has started to create a more regularized, established market and a bit of a history that one can look to to see exactly how this might work out. But those are the main differences, Margie. I hope that explains it. So Scott, I think that does explain it because for me, you level set only a difference of who's setting the price and the quality of those emissions, and then some of the significant factors we have to take into account when they're setting these parameters. 
So let's next talk about some of the steps that the U.S. is taking to incentivize companies to support climate change from a tax standpoint. Sure. Bear with me. We get into a lot of legislative detail here. Let me start with what the U.S. administration is proposing to do, and that is specifically to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52% against a baseline of the 2005 levels, and they want to achieve that cut by 2030. So the timeline had been a little longer, but now they're moving it up to 2030. So that's a pretty significant attempt that they're trying to make here. It's in alignment with some of the international goals that have been set out there, but it's a pretty aggressive timetable. So the United States will formal proposals for legislation and policies to support this target haven't quite been presented. I know we mentioned the one from Senator Coons a few minutes ago, but there are others that are in the pipeline, but nothing fully developed and ready to launch yet. But at the same time, they're trying to throw the hat over the wall, if you will, and then go get it. Similar to what we did perhaps in the 1960s with the space race, where we're going to go try to achieve these goals, even though we're not quite ready to launch yet. But in the meantime, the president has also released a climate finance plan which seeks to double U.S. financing for climate-related programs, not only here, but also in developing countries, to try to put limits on international investment in fossil fuels as yet another way to try to achieve this. So we're not just talking about regulatory and legislative tax changes. We're also talking about some other sticks that might be used here. And in addition, they've called for an executive order or put out an executive order directing the Office of Management and Budget to develop a strategy for climate risks. And they've actually aligned several of the agencies. There's a climate task force being run out of the White House that aligns several of the agencies to try to bring all this together. And there's that bill from Senator Coons that I mentioned that proposes the idea of a carbon border adjustment, the so-called polluter fee. And they have tried to incorporate that into the Senate's budget resolution. So we might hear more about this this fall. And in fact, it might have the potential to get into the debate with regard to the reconciliation bill considered later on. But just to clarify exactly where we are, the U.S. has not enacted any national domestic carbon emissions pricing legislation. We have no carbon tax. We have no emissions trading program, at least at a federal level. There was a brief attempt to do one within some greenhouse gas emissions, not carbon in New England. And there have been other small regional attempts to do this, but nothing at the federal level. But a carbon border tax could add not only to this environmental conversation, but also to trade tensions, specifically perhaps with China, where we already have some ongoing trade tensions. So that'll have to be resolved as they consider the potential for border adjustment as the mechanism here. And in the meantime, U.S. manufacturers could face new border taxes of their own as their exports go from here to countries that have considered imposing their own border adjustment mechanism, whether that's the U.K., EU, Canada or others. So there are a lot of moving parts here, but I think it's key to note that we don't yet have this mechanism in place, but that there are proposals that could be debated as early as this fall within the United States regime to try to consider their imposition. So, Scott, I think that's a really good introduction for the legislative history and helping us understand some of the background. Taking it a little bit further with the Senator Coons proposal for a polluter fee possibly making its way into the reconciliation bill, how do you see these proposals playing out on the Hill? Julie, what is passed is often prologue. So I want to take one more stroll down memory lane here back to 2009 and 2010 when President Obama and the Democrats, who at the time, like now, controlled both the House and the Senate and controlled all of Congress. And they were considering imposing a cap and trade regime to try to address this issue. The House actually went so far as to pass a cap and trade bill, but the Senate declined to take it up. The Democrats in the House felt that that left them a little bit politically vulnerable. And in fact, in the midterm elections in November of 2010, the House Democrats lost many seats and lost control of the House. They don't put the blame for that all at the foot 
of that vote that they took for cap and trade, but at least in part, that is one of their lessons learned. And that memory, even though it's a little more than 10 years ago, is still fresh. So therefore, they want to be very cautious as they move here. There's still some sensitivity within the electorate, really on both sides of the aisle, as to exactly what pathway to take here to address this issue. They're a little concerned about getting a little too far ahead of themselves and potentially facing political downside at the ballot box in next year's midterm elections, should they overstep. So that memory from 10 years ago, as well as that relationship that it creates between the House and Senate consideration of a package is not to be underestimated. In other words, the House may be very eager to move forward on a polluter fee, importer adjusted carbon mechanism. But if the Senate isn't, then will the House be as eager to take it up and vote on it, given that memory and that lesson from before, or vice versa? Will the Senate, since this is a Senate bill with Senator Coons being the lead on it, will the Senate want to take lead on this? So that is a very fresh memory. And that will very much color the debate between the House and the Senate as they figure out not only how to proceed, but really who goes first and whether the other entity, the House or the Senate, depending on who goes first, has the back of the other entity that went first. That's not a small procedural consideration. But then from a design consideration, there's still a long way to go here. I think the most important question is the extent to which they raise revenue from this mechanism. The second most is the extent to which it is perceived by the electorate as not necessarily being a tax on our own economy, but rather the economies of other countries to the extent that it is only imposed on imported products. I think that will be very important from the political messaging. But the first part, that first consideration with regard to revenue is going to be major because the reconciliation bill is first and foremost a budget bill. Raising revenue as part of that bill will be not only important, but perhaps paramount because part of what they're trying to do in that bill is raise money to pay for other priorities. That's the same bill that will carry things like a potential corporate tax increase, individual tax increases that we've been talking about for some time. It has the potential to carry this carbon polluter fee, carbon border adjustment, however it ends up being defined as well. And the extent to which it raises revenue is going to be something we're gonna have to keep a very close eye on. If it is deemed to raise a lot of revenue, that could increase the chances of its inclusion. The real question then becomes the extent to which they can build the mechanism technically and actually vet it well enough that they feel it can be safely included without having some footfalls or unforeseen negative consequences from going too fast to drop this kind of mechanism and from the public's willingness to accept it. If they're seen as going too fast, again, they risk that political downside. But it, it is very much a live exercise and there's not a 0% chance of its inclusion. So we have to pay very close attention to those debates this fall. So a little refresher on what we all learned in grammar school with Newton's third law, that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So taking that concept, what impact do you think this will have on the current trade environment? Because after all, the system is based on imports. And what impacts would that have, for example, on WTO challenges or maybe some of our own U.S. trade agreements? Marjorie, you had a better elementary school, I think, than I did. I got maybe Schoolhouse Rock if I was lucky and just a bill sitting at Capitol Hill. I love the Newton's Third Law. It's a great, great comment. So you're absolutely right, though, that there will be lots of reactions to this. And the trade one is not to be overlooked. The challenge there is that the mechanism that we usually use for resolving trade disputes has fallen on hard times. And that is the World Trade Organization or WTO. Typically, the place to which you would look to remedy some potential international trade challenges. That body is not fully functioning anymore, however, and it's very important to note that. Think about it like this. It's almost as if it is a circuit court without an appellate review board. 
the WTO is still working. You can still bring challenges to it. And certainly there's a lot of conversation about this potential polluter fee border adjustable mechanism and the extent to which it might be WTO compliant. But whether it's WTO compliant almost doesn't matter if you can't get a judgment or enforce that judgment. Now, the circuit court level of the WTO, as we might analogize it, is still technically functioning. But if you do get a judgment, there's no functioning appellate body which can review that lower judgment and determine whether it's appropriate or whether the amounts that were awarded are appropriate. So really, it's a way to achieve a potential outcome that might have either current political merit, such that you can say, look, I went to the WTO, I won a judgment against XYZ jurisdiction, and therefore we can use that in political rhetoric to try to push them into doing something different. You might have even won the ability to impose some kind of economic consequence on that other jurisdiction. But if you can't necessarily get it enforced by the appellate body because the appellate body isn't working right now, then that's a serious problem. And the appellate body isn't working for a variety of reasons. Notably, the appellate members have had their terms expire. And because of a variety of disagreements among WTO members, they haven't been able to reseat new appellate body members. So that's really the problem. And there's really no end in sight to that right now. So the WTO issue will be hotly debated. That will be part of the debate and conversation this fall to the extent this issue is included in the conversation, either in reconciliation, most notably in reconciliation, but possibly more generally. And the WTO compliance factors will be considered. But ultimately, enforcement of the WTO is not something on which anyone should rely. And therefore, it's a little bit more of a Wild West situation with regard to international trade. Either individual jurisdictions can and will act on their own and or they will come up with various ad hoc alliances or groups of countries to act in a similar manner to the extent their leadership agrees. So the WTO is a very interesting issue, but it's not necessarily one that will be determinative either in advancing or stopping any of these legislative efforts. So Scott and Margie, we have covered a lot of information today. Scott, in your own words, we've taken a stroll down memory lane. We've gone through the history lesson and the legislative history, and we've even pulled in science with going to Newton's law and our chemistry terms of CO2 to really focus on carbon tax and the issues here. So before we sign off today, let's try to look into the future. At Scott, where do you see tax and trade policy intersecting with climate change and ESG? It's a great question, Julie, and I think it really brings us full circle to what we said at the beginning, that our conversation here isn't necessarily a debate about climate policy. Rather, it's to try to advise companies about what is happening now and what could be coming down the pike from a legislative and regulatory standpoint. ESG, the environmental, societal and governance changes that are happening from a regulatory perspective are quite real. The environmental piece of this is quite muscular, and it looks like we can expect agencies across the federal government as well as regulatory entities such as the SEC to have a say in the way in which companies have to think about this and have to report on their own efforts, their own carbon footprints, and the extent to which they might be contemplating changes. That is going to be a very significant lift, both an internal administrative burden, there are public relations issues associated with that, but there are also tax compliance and tax reporting elements that have to be considered here and that is only going to increase. This is not going in the other direction. This will only be a bigger and bigger challenge, but also potentially a bigger and bigger opportunity as people see the way in which they can either reorganize or take advantage of their own already positive stories to try to maximize the potential benefits that they could get here. So there are a variety of ways to look at this, and it's already time to be having that internal look, that internal conversation if you're not already. If you have been, great. If you haven't, 
highly advise that you start and pay very close attention to some of the pronouncements from these regulatory agencies that are already a little bit ahead of where the congressional debate is in terms of some of the impact on companies. That is on the radar and it's a blip that's getting closer and closer all the time. So make sure you're ready to respond to it and have that positive outlook, if you can, to take advantage of what's coming. Scott. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of Tap into Tax and for sharing all this great insight with us. You've given us a lot to think about. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We look forward to engaging with you as we tap into tax. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.